0: The American Hardcore podcast. As you could probably tell, I am a huge fan of authors documenting intense rock history. Now, in my American Hardcore book, I did spend about 20 pages on a general history of the Texas hardcore scene, or, or as they would say there, Texas hardcore. And uh, But I've really been uh, outdone here by a new book by uh, writer and photographer, Pat Blaschel, called Texas is the Reason. A really intense must-have book about the Austin hardcore punk scene of the 80s. Uh, so, uh, welcome, Pat. It's really a pleasure to have you here. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah. So, talk about, um, this, this project kind of dates back to your earliest days of rock photography and uh, all that. So kind of talk about how you got into that, uh, what you discovered uh, and what you found and what you discovered uh, in your photos and, you know, that that kind of the artistic part of what got you here. And
1: how long it took me to become any good at it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the, photo, the, the actual uh, Texas is the reason does I actually have one of the first uh, concert photos that I took that was, okay, um, but it took me quite a few, I'd say, you know, four or five years to get better, to get to get good enough for my own uh, purposes. But, um, so I, I uh, had always been a photographer and had always looked at photo books, uh, I had learned a lot from, from that, but um, it wasn't until I got to the University of Texas and really started to do kind of m- more serious documentary photography and to learn what that meant, that I think that I got good and started thinking in terms of a story and telling a story rather than taking uh, just individual pictures.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Talk about what you're seeing in these, these, uh, these shows and the, the bodies and the movement. And I mean, I'm sure that's all part of it, right?
1: Well, I mean, I think that the, the the important thing, you know, here is that I took the pictures almost 40 years ago, and I've lived with them for a long time, but I don't know, it's hard, I have to kind of go backwards and think about what I might have been intending to do back then, because I know that I wanted to photograph my friends and their cool bands, but I, I, I think working backwards and looking backwards and figuring it out, I think I must have also been trying to do a, a complete scene portrait. I think I wanted to photograph every aspect of the scene, um, either that or I was just a uh, kind of uh, manic with the camera and couldn't stop taking pictures. But uh, I, I just photographed um, everybody, even people that weren't musicians. And I photographed people at home instead of just people on stage performing. Um, I photographed people going to a late-night sub shop, and I think that I, I think I was just trying to get a complete portrait of a, of a scene. And the other thing that I realize now that I didn't notice so much back then is I think my favorite pictures are the ones where uh, somebody's maybe on stage, but the audience is participating in such a way that you're not really sure who who is the performer. Uh, and I think that I, I, I knew what I liked, but I didn't have a w- words for it uh, back then. But now I can see that I think the thing that was interesting to me, especially in terms of performance, was that moment where the audience and the, the, the the band are indistinguishable from each other.
0: Yeah, Hardcore was the first place where it was really like the breakdown between the mighty band on the stage and the the viewers in the crowd.
1: Well, uh, Gary Floyd from The Dick said something really nice about that. He said, well, most of the time, the crowd was entertaining me as much as I was entertaining them.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I remember coming to Austin a few times in the early 80s with bands, and uh, it was kind of this loop, liberal oasis in the middle of this vast desert of Texas. Yeah. Uh, Kind of talk about the community aspect. I mean, there's always been this long history, of course, but uh, as it applied to you and and what you saw.
1: Well, you're right. And Austin is a a real oasis. Um, I always loved that Onion headline of a few years ago, The Onion ran a uh, a story uh, that was, uh, the headline was uh, Austinites wake up, panic to find they are surrounded by Texans. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because you know Austin really is a, a, a different sort of a deal and um, we might have thought in those days in the early 80s with hardcore and, and, and punk rock we might have thought that we were our own thing and we didn't have uh, precedence uh, we uh, there were definitely people that talked about that how they didn't want to be uh a continuation of things like the cosmic country movement or some of the sort of hippie movements in Austin. But we were and most everybody had, you know, been in, interested in that music or been actual hippies. Uh, so, and everybody cut their hair and okay. Uh, but, but, you know, there was a long, was a long uh, history of, of uh, things going back even farther than that, back to crazy uh, anarchist bands like the Red Crayola or uh, the psychedelic bands like uh, Rocky Erickson and the 13th Floor Elevators. So even if we didn't know that history, we had it. And um, I think the thing that I think I could say about most people in the punk rock scene was that um, we were really aware of what people thought of Texas and what people thought they knew about Texas, especially people from outside of the state, from other parts of the world. And so I think that people um, were kind of proud. I mean, everybody was, I think most people were proud of being Texans, but also eager to show that we weren't all three headed hillbillies, you know, uh, uh, porking our sisters in the, in the woodshed, you know, and that's what so many people think is going on in Texas. So I think, that's one thing that people had in common and in various ways they were kind of showing and kind of displaying a new kind of Texan. Then when yeah. hardcore hit, I think that's when things got really good because Austin uh, Austin bands didn't necessarily sound like hardcore bands in a lot of the rest of the country, but they they regarded hardcore as kind of more like an aesthetic uh, but not a sound. Uh, so yeah. I think people people understood hardcore punk as kind of license to just go apeshit and play, if not really fast or really loud, then just play really extreme things, you know, and do really crazy things with mixing up genres or uh, uh, doing things in a, in a kind of hardcore way. But it it didn't sound, usually didn't sound like Minor Threat.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There was really, uh, I think you expressed the spirit really well there. And we'll get back to talking about some of these bands. but. Um... The title Texas is the reason now I know it from a misfits lyric and I know there was a band of that title but is there a deeper meaning and or what did the title signify to you well it's the it's
1: a misfits lyric and uh there was a connection between the misfits and especially Glenn Danzig and the big boys and some of the people in town so there was a, a real uh Austin connection you can see Danzig in the book you know cheering on the the big boys at uh, their last show he's on the side like pumping his fist along with the big boys. But actually, I was really inspired uh, uh, by another rock writer who I've never met. Uh, His name is Zachary Lopez. I think I'm saying that right. Zachary Lopez wrote a review of Bullet, the song um, that contains that lyric, Texas is the Reason. And it's a completely, it's a surreal, hysterical, weird song to begin with but the but the review just takes that as a license to really go nuts and I really remember the last paragraph or so of the of the review talked about uh imagine the scene of Kennedy being shot and then sort of used the, the metaphor of a car with something horrible in it moving forward nevertheless and and uh, Lopez sort of made the he sort of was sort of suggesting that America, and I think in a way, Texas, has this kind of death drive, uh, this kind of um, craziness and extremism that can be violent and uh, that also can be perhaps interesting and sort of revelatory. But I was just struck by this idea that Texas could be kind of blamed for a lot of crazy stuff and could be sort of the, I don't know, like a like a uh, an escape valve, you know, like, a, like a, a, a steam valve that lets off steam, you know, because the, the rest of the U.S. is crazy, but Texas is really crazy. So that was my, my inspiration, uh, why I wanted to call it that. It made sense to me. Um, mm-hmm. Because Texas is those things. It is all that sort of crazy stuff, um, as well as being a lot sweeter and more beautiful than you might think. Uh, so it's, it's all that stuff combined.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, when I was about... Uh... 18 years old, I booked a show with in DC with um, with uh, Trouble Funk and Minor Threat and the Big Boys. Yeah. So that was my connection to Tim Kerr and the Big Boys. To yeah, year. yeah. And um, you mentioned that the Big Boys, uh, for people who don't know, the Big Boys were the major hardcore band of Austin, Texas. If you were going to say a, a town, you mentioned Minor Threat, they would represent Washington, D.C. and so yes. on. Yeah. So the band that represented Austin was was the Big Boys, but they really had, other than the energy and the attitude and uh, an emphasis on speed, fast music too, but they really were not a hardcore band in any way. Uh, can you just tell people a little about the Big Boys for and what their significance was too?
1: Well, I still I, I tease Tim Kerr still about being the godfather because, you know, when your godfather asks a favor of you, you know, you do it. And he also does favors for you. But I would say that the big boys played that role uh, in, a, in a less sort of thuggish way um, because they really did sort of take in a lot of new people, inspire a lot of bands, help out other bands. They were kind of the ambassadors, you know, and they they really supported a lot of bands getting started um, so it was just they were just a real um, sort of a I don't know just super nurturing I have to say I mean if they if, if you if you talk about the scene I always think of of the big boys and the dicks as being kind of the the, the founders and the big boys were like mom and they they uh, really took care of people the dicks were like you know the angry pissed- off dad who you never knew what, what he was gonna do and maybe it was gonna be bad um, But the big boys were also musically um, so interesting because they did, they blended a kind of punk and even some new wave sounds with with funk and with black music. So they were really uh, playing with that. And I think it was out of a genuine love for a lot of music that, um, well, probably a lot of punks didn't know. I certainly didn't, I'd never heard of uh, Cool in the Gang uh, or or some of the stuff that they were playing with. So um, they were really, I don't know. Trying to take punk outside of of some of the of the limits that it had already built for itself, uh, mm-hmm. and yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's kind of musically and psychically why they were important. They were innovative and interesting, and they were they were also just super supportive of the other uh, parts of the scene. They were also the very first punk band that I saw. I saw uh, them the first night I went to the first punk club in Austin. Uh, I, I found out about them because I was working in a movie theater with the drummer, and he said, well, why don't you come see my band? We're playing on, on Friday night. So I went and saw them, and I don't remember if he told me the name of the band, but when I got there, my friend and the rest of the band were all on stage wearing dresses, and they introduced, uh, kept repeatedly insisting that they were Kmart and the shoppers. And uh, I found out later, no, that they're, they're the big boys. They're called the big boys. But they did that a lot. I think when they opened for the Go-Go's, they called themselves the the Short Boys or something like that or some sort of, or the No-Go's or something. But, you know, they always kind of, you know, and they changed their theme as well as changed their name for a lot of their different shows too. So good sense of humor. The singer was like just, you know, a walking performance art concept.
0: Mm-hmm. And on a more macro level, like I remember speaking to Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers many years ago and just basically saying my band would not exist if it was not for what the big boys kind of were were doing. Did he say that? Did Flea say that? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, was... he, he said like we kind of were like the next step after the big boys. They kind of, like we were into all this music, but we had never actually seen it done before.
1: Yeah. That's where he was, there was a. There was an interesting show where uh, the Chili Peppers came to town. They played a relatively small club and the big boys were already pretty much at the top of their form, but I think the the Red Hot Chili Peppers had just made the turn from maybe uh, being a more, sort of a a more standard punk band, but they had definitely just kind of hit their, their groove, I guess, in what they were gonna do. And they came to town and They were, uh, before they played, I saw them uh, being sort of escorted to the stage by Chris Gates from the big boys. And it was clear the two bands knew each other, but they got on stage and they had the coolest tattoos I'd ever seen. I think Flea had a full, a full Jimi Hendrix realistic portrait uh, tattoo uh, of Hendrix on his arm. And they were so muscular and they were handsome. And they, you know, the big boys were large, but they weren't necessarily like hunky, you know, they weren't like dream boats. Uh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers were handsome I mean and so I my personal take was that oh my god these guys have have taken what the big boys done and they're gonna like go with it I mean really and I don't know what the big boys thought about it but uh, I I I wondered if there was some sort of uh, feeling like oh shit we could have we could have tried to do something like that but I don't know if they would have I don't know if the big boys were interested in Uh, becoming superstars. I'm not really sure. I don't think they had it in them. I
0: don't think they had that drive. That's what I would say.
1: Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not, I I think that they were, they wanted to make a lot of different kind of music. So I don't know that they could have put the focus on it that the the Chili Peppers did. I mean, the Chili Peppers had one thing and they did it really well and they focused on that. But the the big boy songs, often there was some sort of more metal type songs and there was uh, some sort of boy Uh, sounds in some of the songs they did and and so it wasn't all just funk they were
0: very um, they had a very diverse uh, set and then there's this other uh, side which you also cover in your book which is um, bands like Scratch Acid and the Butthole Surfers yeah which is kind of like maybe your start of alternative rock in some ways or Mm -hmm. your DIY indie rock right something like that yeah yeah so yeah, kind of talk, uh, talk about those bands, I mean, because again you're describing a scene which is why I got into hardcore, which was yeah. I thought it was not only the music, it was all about the attitude that everybody shared.
1: yeah, and like I said, that's just my guess uh when I said that earlier that people took hardcore as a as a strategy um, yeah, I mean, the butthole surfers were kind of a little a little earlier, and they just. I don't know, you know, the weirdest thing was they used a saxophone, they showed up with a saxophone and then they had like props and they were just doing stuff that was kind of ingenious and very low budget, but smart and mind blowing. Mm -hmm. And it didn't sound like a a lot, it didn't sound like any other band I'd ever heard. And eventually we figured out that it doesn't sound like anything else that's happening in the US right now. so I think they were the kind of first uh, group that, that really departed from, you know, what we know as punk rock in a, in a significant way. And then Scratch Acid, I think, I, I have to say, I think Scratch Acid was really influenced by the buttholes. And they, they also took it some complete other direction. Some people say that they had some influences and I can hear a little bit of Led Zeppelin in them, but I also think that maybe I know because I know some of them were fans of Zeppelin, but they just did something really weird and new. Um, the buttholes I wasn't as close with, but David Yao and David Sims from Scratch Acid were like two of my first friends in the punk scene. So I knew them. And for me, the the thing that was shocking was that when when they would play, I thought they were great. I thought they were a really fun and, and awesome band live, but uh, I didn't, Take him seriously. Uh, I, I don't know if you've had contact with him or much contact with him, but David Yao is one of the funniest human beings on the planet. You know, he's just a very funny guy. So it's you—you you, you sort of think of him as a as a knucklehead. Um, so even though they were really great, I didn't—I don't think I took him seriously. And then they recorded their first album and came out. And I remember being in living rooms hearing that that record the first week and just looking at my friends and just you know saying this is really good, meaning this is a piece of art, this is something important, and it's guys that we know that made it. So that was uh, surprising, because I kind of expected it to be like, you know, okay, but not as good as the live show or something. But in fact
0: it was- Who, who to you were, were the great bands of this early mid-80s era that you document in the book? Oh, I mean, I think, th- I think that Scratch Acid, Butthole
1: Surfers, uh, uh, the, uh, Big Boys and the Dicks, uh, The Offenders, uh, I, would, I would add Meat Joy to that group, uh, Poison 13, absolutely, Poison 13, um, and some of those groups never really were known outside of Austin very much. Um, I think the Dicks recorded some of the best punk rock ever, ever, ever. Um, they're known a little bit, people know about them because they moved to San Francisco. Um, but uh, I don't, I actually don't rate MDC as much as a lot of people. Uh, but MDC was originally a Texas band. Um, I need to find out more. I want to do more interviews and talk to David Dichter and, and speak with them more about what happened because obviously they meant a lot to people, to other people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd like to know more about that. So it's sort of a continuing project. But uh, for me, I would say those all of those bands I mentioned. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Big Boys Sticks, uh, Scratch Acid, Butthole Surfers, Poison 13, The Offenders, you can't ever forget the, the offenders,
0: and me, Joy. I think that's my short list. Another thing about being a touring band that would show up in Austin, Texas was not only would you play to a big crowd, people who got it, because, you know, you'd be traveling through the middle of the country and you were like an alien. And yeah. uh, the hospitality uh, and also those Sunday barbecues. So kind of yeah. talk about this kind of culture and how you know this camaraderie localism you know it's, it it's all part of austin punk rock history
1: yeah and i mean you know that's kind of also this it goes with the texan thing or what right. uh, what uh, uh king from the butthole surfers called texas drag because uh you know that's, that's kind of what texas is about it's like you know guns barbecue and in our case wild punk rock so it, i think that a lot of people certainly the big boys uh, played host to, to traveling bands and touring bands and put them up overnight. And a lot of times that meant cooking for them or doing some sort of crazy uh, carnivore party, carnivore action. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that they, they uh, Tim Kerr and Biscuit, the big boys uh, in, in general, really took that seriously about hosting people so that then you know they could travel to that band's town and get the same sort of treatment. Um, that's a cliche. That's that's true about Texans. We're we're pretty we are pretty friendly and hospitable. Um, oftentimes, with no particular, it seems to be no particular motive or no particular uh, instrumentality or tra- transactionalism. I guess, uh, but you know, we 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 want to have a good time, even if it's not us on stage or if it's not our hometown heroes that are playing. So. Uh, but it kind of backfired sometimes, I, I think especially in that kind of peak uh, summer of 84, 85. Uh, there's a Portland group called Tales of Terror that showed up in Austin, and they would not leave. They wouldn't leave. They stayed for like six months. Um, it was it was too long, even for those of us that got a big kick out of them. And while they were there, uh, some Austin people think, and there's reason to believe this, but some Austin people think that Tales of Terror kind of watched and interacted with the group poison 13 to such an extent that like they kind of planted the seeds or cre- crafted the seeds of grunge right um years later when tim kerr went to uh to seattle uh tim kerr was also in in poison 13 uh, but when tim kerr revisited seattle in like you know 88 90 or so there were groups like mud honey and pearl jam and green river and, and uh, some of these folks were telling them we, we got a lot of ideas from you, you know, uh, this idea of playing sort of really loud but slower blues, like kind of, yeah, like grungy blues. Um, the Seattle people told, told Tim, you know, you're, we worship you like a God. We learned a lot from, especially from Poison 13 and Tales of Terror. So that was a nice thing was because I think there, there was that synergy between uh, the groups, even if one of the groups was from out of town, it, it produced something uh, uh, down the road.
0: There's a whole other level that goes from being a writer, a photographer to, to being an author. Um, it really is a transcendent moment, at least in my life, I, I yeah. felt that.
1: You mean um, a difference between magazine
0: writing and doing a book? Yeah, correct. Okay. I, I think it's like the difference between having a band, having a band and being on a record label. It's yes, like that kind of thing. Yes, yeah. Um, So what was the hardest part about this book and what's been the most satisfying part of the book? Um, Because it's a real, people think you just write a book, but it's a real journey. I guess the shorter, shorter answer is that the
1: most gratifying thing about the book, the best thing about the book is that the people in it have all been happy to, To see the book and have thought hey this is this is pretty cool instead of you know I think the worst reaction would have been just kind of like polite you know applause or or silence and I haven't gotten that the people in the book seem happy with it and they they seem like they seem to think that it it tells the right story and so that's super gratifying.
0: And that's not easy because these are um, when you're not financially successful you are worried about the how it's projected historically. yeah. And there's a lot of uh, psychological baggage that often comes with that yeah. uh, about their careers. So if you get are getting responses like that, you're doing very well.
1: Well, about uh, three months or so ago, I woke up and turned on the computer and saw uh, something that really knocked me for a loop. Um, Sammy Town, the singer of Fang, uh, Sammy, uh, had gotten the book. He's in it. There's a few uh, sort of, I wouldn't say pivotal, but some really cool pictures of a time that Fang played in Austin. And it was a night where everybody just went ape shit. They liked the band so much and the band was so on, but the audience was like, you know, rising to the task. And it was really, um, it was an exceptional night. Um, and, uh, you know, years later, Sammy went through some pretty... Tough, disturbing stuff, and I lost track of. I didn't know about all that stuff until much, much later. But um, when I was putting the book together, I, I found out what had happened to him. And yeah, like a few months ago, I woke up and he'd gotten the book and he was posed, posed, and you know, for the camera, holding the book and saying, "This is a really great book." And I just, I didn't know what to, I didn't know what to think. Um, I was, I was gratified and and and. Uh, impressed
0: but um yeah i don't know well i mean for people who don't know what we're talking about the guy served i think it was eight years in jail for uh, murder i mean yeah i mean so i uh killed his girlfriend you know i wouldn't worry too much about uh that but the fact that he um you can't worry about who it's like you're a musician you can't worry about who likes your stuff or um how they like it yeah, you, know, you, you you don't have any control of that. Like you always hear bands saying, "Like that's not what I meant by that lyric," or
1: right, like, you know, something. It, right. it
0: doesn't matter. It's like what people get out of that lyric.
1: Well, with him, with Sam or Sammy, um, I just didn't know how. It's it's hard to know how to how to talk about something like that. And I, you know, it seems like he's turned his life around. I think he's a, a counselor, a twelve a step group counselor. It seems like he's really. Um, Understood what happened to 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 him as much as, as much as that's possible, but in documentary photography and, and, and within punk rock too, some of the people that you meet or in my case the people that you photograph they they go way beyond uh, what most people live and survive and it's then kind of hard to know what your feelings are
0: about that, you know? Uh, you know, we could talk for hours, but we'll kind of la- lastly, um, the, I, I mentioned subculture and talk about the notion of a subculture in this era that we live in, or how punk rock, um, uh, how it looks forty years later. <clears throat> well, I mean,
1: uh, on the one hand, it looks extremely. Uh, Different or strange, if you if you want to talk about groups like Green Day or Blink One Eighty Two, I mean, so so much of punk rock now is what they what they call pop punk, and it's uh, it's it's very you know it's I, I guess it's great for for if you like very melodic sound. Um, so there's that kind of big business punk, and some of those guys seem like cool guys, but it's not my music. It's not I'm not really interested in it. Um, so there's that, but then there's people like Amol uh, and the Sniffers, or uh, um, who's somebody else that I like. There's a group. There's a group here in Vienna called uh, uh, Lime Crush, who are really cool. There's a group from Kansas City called Warm Bodies that I saw play here in Vienna. So on the other hand, there's bands that are are not that kind of a business proposition at all. That are really still playing small clubs and doing, I think, pretty cool stuff with the music. Uh, but they're more interesting to me because they're about this experience that happens in a small club and this kind of exchange between audiences. So I think that's still happening. And I guess Emil and the Sniffers have had a lot of success. But if you see films of them, if you see that singer um, interacting with the crowd, she's the real deal. Uh, she's the real thing. Uh, another group I like, I think they're from California, Surfboard. Um, just, you know, so I think a lot of a lot of what people talk about as punk rock, you, you, you kind of have to go back to them and say, what do you mean? Who who, who you, What group are you talking about? And if they say Green Day, they're talking about an arena band. And if they say surfboard, they're talking about somebody that gets real messy with the audience and, you know, you, you can go to the show, but be ready to be like pulled into the performance and, you know, maybe you're going to break an arm or just get a bunch of weird stuff thrown on you. So I, I'm, I'm more of a fan of the second, you know, <laughs> participatory... Messy, Sorry.
0: punk rock. Mm-hmm. Is uh, what you detail in Texas is the reason, can that happen again even in some way? Or is, is that just a, a place and time that we lived in?
1: I, I, think, I think the answer is yes uh, and no. I mean, I think it's happening all the time. I think there's, there's um, amazing stuff happening all the time. now. During this pandemic, obviously, uh, live shows are not happening as much. Um, people are finding ways to do it, but it's for the time being, it's a little risky. Um, but just the other day, I got a, an email from somebody who's photographing uh, Latino punk. I think at least some of his pictures are in New York City. And he, he sent me a bunch of pictures which showed like a mosh pit with masks, you know, people wearing full corona face masks. And just getting getting down you know doing the 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 old thing, and it just made me feel so great because like they're just you know having <laughs> it's just good clean fun mm-hmm. and don't know if those bands will ever be you know well known or famous, but that's the real thing and uh, so I think that that you know it can happen now even with the the pandemic on it's going to happen more when eventually things get better um. But at the same time, no. I mean, there's always gonna be, uh, there's gonna be different things that, that uh, different pressures that are, are exerted upon punk because of things like social media. And there's always gonna be, no matter how uh, obscure or, or quiet you keep things, if the show is good, somebody's gonna pull out a camera, photograph it, and then, and then that picture could, could uh, lead to a lot of attention to a band. So you don't have the chance as a band, I would imagine you don't have the chance as a band to kind of develop and get your concept down before all of a sudden people are you know, calling you with interview requests and somebody wants to sign you. So I think uh, that gestation period is probably a good thing, but it's,
0: it might be kind of impossible to have that now. Sure, sure, that's great. Uh, now now uh, to cl- finish this off, we'll do a little bit of a lightning round. I'll just, I'll just uh, throw out a, a word or a name and you just tell me what, what comes to your mind. Okay. Uh, Best Austin band. Dicks. Best Dallas band. Oh,
1: NCM. Non, non Copos Mintos. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Uh, Best Houston band. Oh, shit. Uh, Culture Side. Excellent. Yeah. Perry Webb is a very good friend of mine. Um, cool. Love that. Um, Randy Biscuit Turner.
1: Uh, performance artist, uh, par excellence. Tim Kerr. Tim Kerr, the godfather. Um, amazing, like, best punk-funk guitarist besides Andy Gill. (laughs) Uh, David Yao. Funniest,
0: funniest person on the planet. Um, Poison Thirteen.
1: Um, the Psycho Billy band that should have
0: um junkyard.
1: <sighs> Never heard them. <clears throat> didn't Never really hear it. them. Okay. Didn't know them.
0: Speak well, we have people. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I didn't. I didn't really hear the records. I have to admit. Uh, and finally, Texas is the reason. Yeah, um,
1: the, the best and the worst of the US. Texas is the best and the worst of the US.
0: I think I would agree. I think I would agree. So uh, Pat Blashill, incredible to have you on the American Hardcore Podcast. Uh, thank you for everybody for tuning in. We'll see you on the next episode of the American Podcast. Thanks for Hardcore having me. The podcast. My thank pleasure. You,